We're sitting here right now in the most amazing flanny-covered floor, which I'm all about, in the seat and arms with Mr. Bob Harris. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Now, did you just put this carpet down today because you carpet's know... Carpet's been here for close on 50 years, Mel. <sighs> Could like, turn it into a jacket. It was put here when the, when the original building was built. 50 years ago. Yeah, 50 they, years ago. They were ahead of themselves. They did not know that flanny was going to become trendy. <laughs> trendy at all so this is very different from the space that i once imagined i'd be interviewing you in because you have a background in just managing music yeah we um the ceo of the ssna and i talked probably eight or nine months ago about this particular building Mm -hmm. this particular property and we talked briefly about the opportunity to buy it and I left it with him, and Jared went ahead and started negotiations with the people who owned the freehold. In the end, he bought it, and then while we were in lockdown, he called me up and said, come and have a bit of a yarn, so we did. And then he said, well, look, we've bought that particular property. The person that's leasing it would like to leave for obvious reasons. Would you like to go and run it? And I had been involved in a hospitality and accommodation before. So I said, yeah, I'll go and do it for you. So we had a plan. The plan's changed. This is where I am and this is where I'll be for the next X, Y, Z until I finish. So if I was to, you know, just off the street say, who is Bob Harris? How would you describe yourself? Uh, Just a guy that loves music, loves what he does. And does them pretty much his own way. Family man and someone who lives in suburbia and someone who years ago might have been hovering between the streets and incarceration. But I managed to uh, survive that period and made it to here. You know, retirement's closer than what it was a year ago. So I'm pretty happy with the space that I'm in, and I have been happy for 12 years, 13 years. Okay. Tell me about this potential incarceration. Well, when I was in my 20s and unmarried, that was a period of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yep. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) And there was a, you know, in no particular order, I indulged in, in most of what was going around at the time. So, you know, it was just a different period in our, in the life of myself, and I lived in Sydney. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit full on up there, and I really enjoyed it. But uh, I then came to Albury, and over a period of time, I sort of started to mellow out a bit. Are your fingerprints on record somewhere? No. They're not? No. You can't have got that close then. Uh, close enough. Close, close enough. enough. <laughs> close enough. So were you a music fan already, even during Absolutely, this Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I bought my first albums, Josh, in around about uh, when I was still working in Griffith, would have been around about 67, 1967. I bought Black Sabbath, Paranoid, and I bought the Bee Gees first, yeah, both the same at the same time. You're in Griffith? I was in Griffith, yeah. What, are you working for the mafia there? Is that part of this? I've seen a little bit of that, but no, I was working in a bank. 
Yeah. Okay, well, we won't ask so, about so that. So, <laughs> laundering money for the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> so, just you've given us a time frame there, Bob, and people might not have been able to tell from your voice that you were already kicking around at that point because you sound a bit younger. No, but, no, no. No, yeah. Josh, I'm, I'm not that young, yeah. believe me. But, <laughs> you know, all of the periods that I've had, I've really enjoyed it. It's, yeah. it's been a lot of fun. So you were basically growing up, and I'd like to know how music even got to Griffith at that point, but they were talking about some of the biggest bands ever. But you were essentially during rock and roll's heyday in yep. terms of most of the greatest bands of all time. Yep was during your development as a music fan. Correct. But uh, I listened to um, Melbourne radio. I could pick up Melbourne radio on my car radio. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I listened to Melbourne radio and listened to all of the new music that was coming out. I didn't listen to 2RG at the time, which is what it was. I listened to all of the radio stations in Melbourne and heard all the new music and then went down to the record store and said, order me some of this gear. <laughs> yeah, how was that received? Absolutely, it was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And I've been buying records ever since. Well, now that you've said that, there's so many different tangents to go out on, but you have had in the past record sales at SSNA, yep. haven't you? How did that come about? Um, only because of Jeffrey Hartbright, who owns True Hi-Fi. Jeffrey brought up half a million dollars worth of Hi-Fi equipment yeah, and um, we badged it as the SSNA Hi-Fi and Record Fair. Yeah. So Jeff, when he brought up the Hi-Fi, they used records to demonstrate the qualities of the audio equipment. It was very smart. Very so smart marketing. They sold a lot, and yeah. then we had four or five or half a dozen different record sellers. Yeah. Can I ask a question? And this is probably something that the music heads are wondering. Where does Bob Harris sit on the vinyl versus CD argument? Do you have a passion for one over the other? No, not at all, Josh. I think vinyl is a much better sound over CD, but it's pretty hard to play a vinyl in the car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit difficult. So, so I play a lot of – I have a couple of thousand vinyls and I have a couple of thousand CDs. So – if you like us, like I like us, get on to punchingsideways.com, give us a bit of a likesy, have a bit of an exploration around and maybe buy us a coffee. I want to ask you your background with sex, drugs and rock and roll. Oh, Mel's onto this, isn't yeah. she? She's do not going to let it go. Oh, no, I don't. <laughs> but do you feel like that actually when you came about to managing musicians – did this give you a little bit of relatability and a, a way to sort of communicate with them? Because you're not just someone just going. No, I never used that. Never used that as an in. When you when you book a band, you're managing people. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what you're doing. And the the trick with any band is to make sure they understand it's time for work. Mm-hmm. You had to be able to talk to people way above my pay grade and say, by the way, this is not party time. It will be in three hours, but right now it's stage time and work time. So how did this idea come about? Because you've you've described yourself, music, passionate about music. How did 
you channeling all this music into SSNA happen? Because did it come against resistance or are you no. just like you just said, this is happening, I'm making it happen? It happened because the SSNA was going through a period. Josh was playing at the SSNA. And I said, we can't have that. <laughs> no, when we had this period, SSNA was struggling. Yeah. Really, really struggling. And we lost our CEO and we appointed a new one. And I had had a couple of jobs and then the old CEO asked me to take over booking the music because the guy that was doing it resigned and, and I had no option. I didn't get the, would you like to? Yeah. It was, this is what you are now doing. And the new CEO, when he'd been there 12 months, he said to me, we're really struggling in our core business, we need something to bring people in, even if it's only through the bar. Mm-hmm. And he says, we'd like it to be entertainment. So get out there and get into it. Make it happen. Can you remember your first gig, like the big gig? That yeah, you can. Yeah, what can you describe it to me and how it all came yeah. about? Let's, let's just take a little step back. We had a lot of, when I first started, we had a lot of local bands. Mm-hmm. And Josh was part of that. Yeah. And we developed, I remember saying to Tim Levesque, who was the CEO that just came in, and he said to me, you need to get out there and get some really good entertainment. I said to him, okay, Tim, no problem at all. I said, there's a problem. And he said, what's that? I said, we actually need a stage. (laughs) He said, "Uh, all right. So I went and sourced a stage and this might sound trivial, in the scheme of arrangement today, but in 2010, 2009 it would have been, I said, I walked to his office and said, give me 11 grand, I've got the stage. Yeah. And he said, how much? <laughs> I said, $11,000. And he, <laughs> he sat there and he said, right, go get it. So he bought the stage and then we started playing local bands mm-hmm. and we had success because the local uh, entertainment scene was very docile at that point in time. And then he introduced me to a friend that he'd worked to worked with before, and his name was Dwayne McDonald. Mm-hmm. Dwayne McDonald is the same Dwayne McDonald that runs the Red Hot Summer Tour. Yeah. And Dwayne said to me, we'll put some blokes in for you. In his Im- inimitable style. Yeah, yeah. And the first one he put in was Shannon Noel. The first gig. Very first Very gig first. that we did as a headline act mm-hmm. was Shannon Noel. Now, you'll remember the stage, Josh. It was the stage not where not where the studio stage was. It was a stage where, remember, it was surrounded by glass. Yes. And it used to boing, 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 bounce everywhere. And then when you opened to go out into the courtyard, shoo, the sound flew out the out the door. <laughs> there was two doors. There was one around and one in the middle of the glass. And every time someone went out for a cigarette and opened the door, blast off the courtyard away. <laughs> but it was blasting the people across the road. Oh, we've all had that issue at different points, haven't we? But Shannon was to describe it was just unbelievable. Because this was back in like when he was. This was two thousand. Yeah, so when he was. was Smoking hot. A big deal. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. Still is a big deal. And 
what was the feedback from that? Well, what was he like to deal with? He's like, oh, God, Dwayne, you're sending me to Aubrey. Oh, Aubrey doesn't even Shannon, know the place. I come from Kenoblin or wherever it is. Kenoblin. Kenoblin. <laughs> Look, Shannon, for all of the, the rough, tough Aussie larrikinism he exudes, he's a pretty gentle sort of a bloke. Yeah. When you get down to the nitty-gritty. But on stage, he's like Angry Anderson. Yeah, okay. He's like Jason Singh. He's like Reese Maston. He's like Andrew, Andrew Strong out of The Commitments. Mm-hmm. He's like the Dead Daisies. They love it. They love it. They just love it. So for our listeners that may be unfamiliar with those acts, when you're describing a frontman like an Angry Anderson, there's a, like that's an archetype as yep. much as anyone on that list. Yep. Can you describe what similarity you see between those two? Yeah, I can, uh, Josh. They appeal directly to everyone in the audience and they understand that and they play on it and they reach out and drag them in. Yeah. And they're gone. <laughs> yeah. Seriously gone. You try and tell someone that loves Shannon Noel that he's singing like shit and they'll look at you as if you're from outer space. <laughs> if you, If I said to you, Josh, I've got Angry Anderson and Rose Tattoo here, but I've unfortunately picked the wrong production team and he's made them sound like, you know, something second rate. They wouldn't care because he was on stage. Talking about production team and all that, sort of, that's a big deal to put all that together as well. Did you take full ownership of that or did you trust the people that were coming to bring their own production? Uh, we stopped it. Okay. In the end, we stopped it after a headline act bought their own production and did make them sound second rate. And when they came off the stage, they're still going around, by the way. Mm-hmm. They're still a very big act. I said to them, um, that, you know, we were talking after the show and they said, would you like us to come back? I said, yeah, 18 months, I'm getting the production. And they said, why? I said, because you sounded like shit. (laughs) And they both looked, you know, the the four guys in the band sort of looked at me and said, really? I said, mate, the bloke was fixing his speakers during sound check. Yeah. Seriously. I'm getting production. Doing doing actual repairs on the hardware. He was doing repairs to his his hardware. Wow. And I looked at him and said, this isn't going to go real well. There were some... People in the audience, the audio files, they went, hello, this is wrong. But the rest just, they loved it. So you've pointed out something that people that maybe haven't played in a band don't know. Quite often when there's a, you're not feeling any energy from the crowd or you feel like there's a mismatch with a crowd that you normally get a good response from, you really have, beyond that front set of speakers, no idea how it's translating Correct. sound-wise. Yep. And as a musician, you would never admit it. But the most important people in that building is the guy pulling up the master fader That's and not correct. on the desk. The most important person in the room is the production team. Yeah. Josh on bass misses a note, no one's going to pick him up. But if the guy on the production team doesn't stop at the right time, the lights don't gel, or he actually turns the fader down or something happens at production, everyone knows. The amount of times I used to go up to people and say, what are you doing with this guy and, you know, be a bloke tapping Booney or Nathan Schultz or Rolf or 
you know, Dan on the on the shoulder saying, turn it up, mate, and I'd say, why don't you fuck off, let him do his job. <laughs> yeah, well, Dan, Dan Lawrence, I know who you're talking about, is one of the most professional sound well, guys. Well, Dan and, and Sam yeah. and Nathan, Rod Chater, Tony Byrne, and then we had Tim from Wagga. We had Chris Circus, who's used to, who still does theatres all over Australia. We had Brad Corkin from Shepparton, and James Hobson's just started working for Rolf and Stein out at Party Oz, and James was one of the best mixers I've heard for a while. So you put your trust into them, but you only book them when you know they're suitable for that band. Yeah. So you have to put the same level of thought process into booking your sound guys as yep. you do. Yep. It's like setting up what I would, I would imagine a comedy gig where you have to have the right sort of mix. It was the same with people would think outside in that all you need to do is make sure that the, the bands that are playing are of similar style so that they all go together so that the crowd's going to be happy. There's much more that goes into Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I mean, I, there were times when... Yeah, I would I would select the production team based on the the group that they were actually going to mix, and it was often the team that I didn't want there, but I knew that the team that I wanted wouldn't appreciate the music, wouldn't appreciate the age group, wouldn't appreciate the people that they brought in, and therefore wouldn't have been giving hundred percent. So you had to compromise and go to another one that would. Do you know what I mean? The people that had the best equipment sometimes didn't want to work with younger bands or metal bands or death metal bands. They wanted to work with normal rock, pop, country music. So you had to make sure... There's nothing sure if you put them, and I had made that mistake of putting them with a pretty hard rock band and the lead singer saying, turn the fucking thing up. We can't hear through the wedges. And then yeah. the guy walks up and says, that's because your bloke on the lead guitar has got his amplifier at 11, is why you can't hear through your wedges. Yeah. And then, of course, you would start an argument. <laughs> <laughs> so you then, so after a while, you pick, Not, not I'm not saying that I picked production teams that acquiesced. Yeah. I'm picking production teams that understood the mindset and could deal with it. I probably didn't know you then, Bob, but I was managing the entertainment at Sodans from 05 to about 08 when it closed. And we were having sound problems too, massive sound issues, which we all have. The louder and better the band, sometimes the more trouble you get in. Correct. But we had a couple of sound guys come through for some really great bands that just did not understand the pressure we were under to stay below a certain decibel reading if the police came. <laughs> like, they just didn't care. And one of the bands is probably, they sound like ACDC and Motorhead. That's what I'll, that's all I'll say, and they're probably the loudest band on the planet. Sounds like Electric Mary. <laughs> they're louder than Electric Mary. They're- well, let me tell you, the, the guy <laughs> that mixed Electric Mary was banned. Yeah. He was the band one. No, no, I banned. No, this this yeah. was a production guy. Yeah. They just said, you ain't coming back, bud. Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't turn it down and no. you've driven everyone away, which is what Josh would have found. It was 
so loud Ear that splitting. you you could feel the like your face tingling from the volume in a painful <laughs> way. But all he needed to do was keep it. He just needed to go down about three dB, and they were still the loudest band in the country at that point. But he just didn't care. So in the end, we basically had to walk up and say, "Look, you're either going to have to stop or turn it down." And we got all this pushback. And then the band found out later, and they were so upset. They're like, oh, if we had known you were having that issue, because they literally have it in their contract, this band, you may not, you are never to tell us to turn down, and we refuse to. There was literally a contracted line item at the time that someone else had signed off on. And they were like, oh, we, we didn't know it was that dire. Probably my fault, just not interacting with them enough during the day for them to know where we were at with our sound problems. Oh, we all have them, but. But I've only ever had one who was mixing Electric Mary that wouldn't turn it down. It's and fun. I said, I said, mate, you've just ruined the show for two or three hundred people. I will say this about Electric Mary, though. Going to see them was probably the most pleasant surprise of a gig that I've ever just rolled in on. Well, if you, if you walked in on a gig that you loved Electric Mary when Tony Byrne was mixing them, you would have loved it. He was, he had the levels where they needed to be, but traditionally Electric Mary travelled with her own sound engineer. Yeah. He's a guy that does a lot of records, a lot of recording. Mm-hmm. And and he just, he turned around and said, mate, they're a rock band. I said, I don't give a fuck what sort of <laughs> rock band they are, mate. They're too loud. Look at the people walking out the door. Yeah. I think they can't. Was- it's ear splitting in here, mate. <laughs> Wouldn't turn it down. So when they finished, I said to Rusty Brown, who was the lead singer, I said, mate, that guy there, he ain't coming back. Yeah. And I said, if you need, if you're going to bring him back, you'll be going Sodans. You won't be coming here. I've, I've just never seen it. I've never seen anything like it. The absolute description of putting on a clinic, watching them. Like, and I have no idea why they're not more well-known. Yeah, me either. They've got a Pete Robinson in, on guitar. They've got just a complete rhythm section. Rusty Brown's got the best voice I've heard in rock and roll for many, many years. And I've never seen anything like it where someone could be like front man there singing and then just just walk off the stage and the rest of them can just lift. Yeah. It was an absolute clinic. And I think I remember it was when there was a big another big band in town, a younger type band. And people missed out. It was that there was a clash, and I just rolled in and I was like, "Oh wow, what have no, I just they were good come, band. come about?" I loved them. I think I might have underrated them because my band played with them on a beach in Cobram at Peaches and Cream, and right before them, a band called Mammal played, who have probably the most engaging frontman going around at the time, Ezekiel. He was insanely captivating, and. So it was kind of any band following them was going to going to be struggle. Well, yeah, just from an engagement point of view because he's so engaging. And then they played before Cog, who were the biggest heavy rock band in the country at the time. So they had a pretty tough slot. But I do think back and I think, wow, yeah, they were really putting on a full blown rock show. Yeah, they were on forty two degree day in the in the sun on a beach. <laughs> that's the way they do it. I mean, they, you know, they're a rock band, and that's what the. Mm. That's what the sound guy said to me. Here's the rock band. I said, yeah, mate, I know it's a rock band. You don't have to spell it out to me. I understand, but turn it down. (laughs) Wouldn't do it. 
just in terms of you've got this heritage of liking rock and roll. You talked about early Sabbath and stuff like that. Did you have a passion for other genres as well that were as strong as rock and roll? And how uh, the you- only genres I dislike, Josh, uh, opera, and there are some heavy classical that I that I can't actually fathom when it starts to get a little bit funereal. The genres that I really enjoy are blues, rock, pop, country, hip-hop, anything in between. And I can take hard rock as well, but, um, you know, I grew up on Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Rolling Stones, Early Stones with Mick Taylor, The Beatles, and a lot of other different Steve Harley, Cockney Rebel, you know, Carly Simon, Bruce Springsteen. So I grew up with all that, and that's a good grounding for enjoying all sorts of different rock. And then I was introduced to country, and the country crossover, they call it, or country rock. And I was having this discussion with two girls in the motel today. There are some country players out there that will leave a rock band for dead. Mm-hmm. Adam Eckersley, we had him there and he is married to one of the McClymonts. And, mate, talk about rock. They were tearing it up. They were unbelievably good. So, yeah, there's the only two. Opera doesn't suit me. It just, I, it's normally in a different language. But, you know, acoustic I can take. You know, we've had a lot of acoustic acts. We've had a lot of rock acts, pop acts, tribute bands blues, jazz, we've had it all. Let me ask you, and that's a great background for this question I'm about to ask. As someone that's booked a lot of entertainment, how do you know something's going to work because they're good at what they do versus something I hope it works because I personally like it? No, never did that. Yeah, so what were you going, what was going through your head? Because obviously if you hear something that really appeals to your taste. No, I was booking people that we're going to make the people that come, come back. I was never booking anybody I liked. That came. That's what I was about to ask. That came. Richard Clapton was – I saw Richard Clapton four times in Sydney when I lived there in those days, Mel. Yeah. When I was probably – not quite with it. <laughs> Listening to Probably Richard. the perfect act. <laughs> perfect act. Yeah. Um, and Billy Thorpe as well. But, you know, when Richard came down, he was offered to us and I booked him. And, yeah, it was just um, watching him on stage was just bizarre. And then being able to sit down with him afterwards mm-hmm. and um, talk to him about it was really good. It was a buzz. But it was the only time, you know, there's one or two times it had happened, but... Very rarely. Josh, I booked bands that I knew would get a lot of people in or get people in, mm-hmm. pay for themselves and get people back. We wanted to be the entertainment capital of regional New South Wales and Victoria, and that's what we were for a while. So how do you go about deciphering that in your head? You just go, this this band's popular, I'm going to book them for here. Yeah. That's, that's as simple, no, no, no. This simple band, as it was. No, it was a little bit. I went through the system of checking out all their Instagram, Facebook website, going through and looking where they're playing, why they're playing, when they're playing, saying, gee, hang on, this guy's pretty good, but he plays a lot overseas and that might mean a lot of his followers come from XYZ and they're not in Albury, Wodonga. We do our 
we do a, a little bit of a study of what we felt was the genre that we could capture, bearing in mind we brought a lot of people up here that had never heard, people had never heard before. And uh, we decided to give them a go, and and we did. And did I have failures? Yeah. We had times when I would have liked more people. But I've, I've actually had the production guys say to me, you know, when there's 150 people watching Lockie Dolly with Jimmy Barnes' boy on on drums, Jimmy Jackie Barnes, and saying the people of Orbeodonga missed the classic. Yeah. Nicky Bomber and Buster Mento, when, when he was here, we probably had 200 people. We should have had 500 because Nicky Bomber was just out of this world. He had people conga lining around right through the SSNA upstairs, downstairs. Yeah, okay. You don't do that very often. Nicky Bomber had that ability. So you're signing me for a gig, yep. right? How does that come about? And tell me about the transition between when you're hitting people up to come here and they're like, oh, no, they're kind of Aubrey, to then people actually seeking you out to play gigs. Well, early on, I relied on Dwayne McDonald. Dwayne yeah. was a guy that... He just said that's what he you're was, doing. Yeah, he said, Bob, book this date. Yeah, yeah. You've got Brian Cadd. You've yeah. got Glenn Shorrock. You've got Russell Morris. You've got Ross Wilson. Yeah, right, Dwayne. And then I started to move out into the areas of where he was getting the axe from, and quite with Dwayne's knowledge. Mm-hmm. And then I started getting calls from Premier Artists and Harbour Agency and WME and New World Artists because we started to create ripples amongst the, the headline acts that, shit, hang on, Aubrey, we should put that on the calendar because although it's been a dead zone for 10 years, suddenly there's some life in the old girl yet. And that's when I started then talking to these people and asking them for acts, and then they were telling me what, what acts were coming into this area, and then I'd make a decision where they'd work. And then I'd go after a particular act. For instance, I wanted a guy to do a solo spot on a Sunday afternoon and they offered me Tim Friedman. And I said, oh, Tim's out of the Whitlam's. What's he like solo? And the bloke at the end of the phone said, hang on, he's the lead singer of the Whitlam's. I said, I couldn't give a stuff, mate. (laughs) What's he like solo? Yeah. And he said, well, he's very good. And I said, how much is he? And then we negotiated. Yeah. Down comes Tim Friedman, sits down and 300 people turn up on a Sunday afternoon in the studio. Yeah. Playing the, the keys and the next minute I said to him, how come you don't bring the bloody Whitlam's down here? And he said, because you never bloody asked me, you dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, three months later, boom. Yeah. In they come. So is that a good technique, you think, just – Pick, pick oh, one off. it is. At the height of what we were doing, Mel, we were being contacted by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had Canned Heat. We had Smash Mouth. We had Andrew Strong and the Commitments. We had Chris Christofferson. You know, these, these come from people who were bringing them in to Australia. So we were very privileged to be part of their tours, but they were contacting us. I like how you're saying we. Because was it a we or was it a you? That's no, a we. It was a we? Mm. It was definitely. Did we 
need a security guard because you're kind of a big deal to walk around no. SSNA? No. The only argument I ever had with Tim was about the beards. About the beards? Yeah. What? I wanted to book the beards. Josh. Oh, yeah, the band, the beard. I yeah. thought you meant actual facial hair. <laughs> no, no. They were almost like a. I was like, is Tim trying to get They were the best cult band in the world. Yeah, mysterious the cult band, yeah. They were a serious cult band, and I yeah. wanted to book them. And uh, I booked them. And they had, a, they had a tour, but it was their last tour. And we were their second last show. Yeah. And I'd, I had travelled to the UK in 77 and watched a lot of punk where the stomping on the ground. Yeah. When the beards came, I looked around and said, hello, here's the punk back. That was, you put your foot down for that one? No, everybody was stomping on the ground. No, no, to get the beards. No, it was, oh, yeah, I did. I said, no, we're getting them. (laughs) So my brain thought that Tim was going to try and get you to cut your beard off. No, no, no. Yeah. The beards were just a bit – they were expensive, don't get yeah. me wrong. I fought tooth and nail. I said, Tim, if they fail, give me the Kyber Pass. Yeah. Put them on. Why they went, fill the joint. Good. What's your – the best gig you think that you've been a part of and put, put on? Uh, apart from – Mel, I reckon over the journey I've done around about 1,450 gigs. Okay. Apart from 10 of them or 20 of them, every one of them was brilliant. Yeah, okay. And because they all bought their own unique? They all they all promised something and they delivered, and that includes CFM and Candela Lie and all the rest, all the local. Don't, don't underestimate what we had here locally, Monday Saints. Yeah, let's talk about Monday Saints. Monday was- Saints was Picker's idea, yep. Adam's idea. And we got together and I said, okay, you put the musos together, I'll support it and we'll fund it and we'll pay everyone and we'll give you rehearsal space. Oh, wow. So we did all of that and then Adam put all the Monday Saints stuff together. And then when we did that, that was the best period of my life because I had all these Aubrey musicians working together. Yeah, how did that come? Like, Well, it's never happened. They hated each other. Yeah. <laughs> So what is it, just go out and cherry pick no, their best? No, just put a call out there. Yeah. Adam put a call out and 100 musos responded. 100. Wow. First one we did was Sounds of Seattle. Yeah. And I'd used Jake Casey just as a, po- a case in point. I'd used him in his own little band and I'd never seen him in a bigger show like this. But when I watched him on stage, as I did with the others, I thought – I saw the growth. So that was the evolution that you saw from them. Well, two of my best friends, Rudy and Dan, we've played hundreds of original shows and had some great gigs in Melbourne and played festivals and in Jindabyne at the X Games and all these things. And I've never seen them look like they were having a better time than they were on those Monday Saint shows. They still talk about it like it was the, literally the greatest time they've ever had on stage sure. ever. Yeah, And it should have been. How did you feel and how did you cope with, I'm going to bring it up because we've all had to manage in our own way all these restrictions and that with entertainment. You know, I 
loved getting involved with things and my sort of world got crushed. Josh's world got crushed a little bit. All these people so that, that you've supported for so long yep. and could have here and welcome in as your family, how did you manage that or were you worried about everyone else and not managing yourself? No, I didn't give a stuff about me. Yeah. It manifested itself in having to um, talk a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. You know, we were all in the same boat. Yeah. I wanted to put it on. They wanted to play. They wanted to get paid. We wanted people to enjoy music. We wanted people to live. We wanted people to be able to go home after a good night, sit down and still be buzzing. Yeah. You couldn't do any of that. It's been two years of horror. Bullshit. That's what it's and I And I feel very much for the Reese Mastons and the Shannon Knowles and the Josh Listons of, of Albury Wodonga that can't play. Yeah. I really do. I feel it's two years of their life has been taken away and I know Tim Henwood, Joe Camilleri, Ross Wilson, they've all been writing. They're prolific. James Rain, Mark Seymour, they're all writing songs. But, Jesus, it's hard to get a song out there these days. The only way to do it is to perform. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't. Their livelihood was taken away. Yeah, it's been pretty, pretty tough. How, okay, so you've got, we're going to have new music coming out. Yep. So buckle up, that's all I'm saying. What better time to write music when you're feeling, feels pretty much. Don't people all get all depressed and start writing music about that? I've, I've never, I've written hundreds of songs in my life and I don't think I've ever done one when I'm happy. <laughs> and now you're a comedian. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should be interviewing you, yeah, Josh. Probably. There's a lot going on up here. <laughs> there's a lot going on in that cabinet. Yeah. I tell you. So there's going to be big, big things that come out off the back of this once people get released back into the wild. Is there a memory for you? You know, you've seen so many gigs. Well, actually, one point that you brought up is that you went to every gig yep. that you booked. Can you tell everyone why? Yeah, it was responsibility. It was responsibility. I booked it. We were paying the money. I wanted to make sure when they got on stage at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock that they were in the best possible shape they could be to play to the best possible audience they could get with the best production I could buy. That was it. So... You've usually got a front man, right? Yep. The person that everyone wants to come and see. Yep. Has there been yep. anomalies that have spawned out of you just being around all these people that you've found these other little treasures yes. because of it? all the time. All the time. That's why I was there. So just talking to everyone. Talking to everyone, getting a feel for this, getting a feel for that. Book the thirsty merc through their lead guitarist. Got a real serve off their manager, but it didn't really bother me. I booked him when he was playing with Carice Eden. I said, who do you play for? He said, Thirsty Merc. I said, oh, what are you blokes doing? You got your diary? He said, yeah. I said, what are you doing this day? He said, nothing. I said, what do you do? Who do I ring? And he said, ring this bloke. And I rang him and said, I've been talking to blah, blah, blah. And he gave me a serve and said, yeah, book it in. Yeah, okay. Thirsty Merc. Unbelievable. You seen that, Mel? No, I haven't seen them live. One of the most extraordinary performances I've ever seen. Really? The last show at Aubrey. Okay, well, I hope they come back. Seriously, they're, they're booked around the road. 
they got on stage. I'd, I've had them four times, five times. The last time they were there, the place was full. Durston Merck got up, sang two songs, went into singing one of their hits. The crowd started singing it. Thirsty Merck just played on. Just played. Didn't sing. Didn't sing. Anyway, Ray started the next song and they kept singing and they just played on. <laughs> For 20 minutes, Thirsty Merck never sang a note. That must be the ultimate as a performer. That is. That's when you've got yeah. them. That was bizarre. I'm standing beside the stage looking at big Phil thinking, hey, Phil, you're going to sing? And he said, <laughs> just playing his big bass. Put the middle finger up. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> you it was just the sing. most bizarre concert. But when they're in full flight, yeah. Thirsty Merc, they're as good as anyone. Yeah. Now I'll have to try. They are as good as anyone, believe me. You've seen a good act and you've seen Thirsty Merc. Rose Tattoo, the same. Okay. Rose Tattoo, it's just bizarre. But, you know, they're all different. They're all different. Yeah. Every one of them. So you had your tough period. Again, I'm going to reflect back on when you nearly were in jail. And then you you met your beautiful wife. Mm. How did she cope with you spending no, all this time? We, we had an agreement. An agreement? Yeah. She said, I don't like drugs. Yeah. You want to do drugs? Let's call it off now. Okay. But how did she go when you're out every no, no. weekend? No. That was so part of the was. agreement. It was part of the deal. Yep. Yep. Did she ever come along? No. Never? Classical. So she likes the music you don't like? She likes classical and opera. <laughs> that puts That's a different, amazing. puts a different perspective on that earlier comment. Oh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. I listened to some classical. I did say funereal, remember? Yes, you did. Yeah, I yes. didn't. You know, some of the stuff <laughs> they were, yeah. some of the stuff they were playing today, Jane was playing at home, was really nice and uplifting, I've got to say. Yeah. But I could never get my head around opera. And some of the musicals, which are in Italian again, I could never do that either. But, no, Hunty never came. Well, she did. She came, she came down to a couple of um, acoustic ones. I think Ross Ryan she came down to, and there might have been one or two others that she came down to, but she would never have come down for anything that was – a full rock show. It was not her style at all. Wow. That's sort of cool. And she it. had to listen to a lot of music that she didn't like over nine and a half years, Mel. Believe me, because when I did the radio show, yeah. I always researched what I was going to play. Right. Always and to, the same thoroughness that you put into booking Always had gigs. to play the music that I was going to play. Do you feel like you've left... And obviously the last couple of years have been hard. Do you feel like you've left music in a better place than when you found it around here? And or how do you feel about the impact you've had? Oh, we were pretty proud of what we achieved. Don't get me wrong, you know. We bought some acts to Aubrey that would not have normally got here and people wouldn't have had the opportunity to see them. So we were very chuffed. We weren't arrogant. We were very chuffed that, you know, we had some of the biggest overseas acts come and play at SSA. We were chuffed with Monday Saints. We we grew the local music scene. We grew the headline acts coming to Albury. 
I noticed the Rubens and Thirsty Merck are now going to Paddy's. They still have that affiliation with Aubrey. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it's not at SSA, they're going somewhere else. So we, as a collective, were very proud of what we did. And I think we left music in a far better place than what it was, except two years ago, the whole thing exploded. And had it not, I had 12 months calendar already done and it would have been even bigger and better. We were bringing Slim Jim Phantom in out of the Stray Cats. We were going to blow him in. Mate, it was going to be just bizarre. But what happens? You just have, you need to take a breath and you need to change and move away and move on. That's what we've done. I know, mate. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to sit down with you, have you on Punching Sideways. I know I had you on my list for a very long time as someone of interest and because of my role at the time and your role, it was probably not kosher, but I'm super happy we got it done. And Mel's been talking about you ever since she's been on the show, which is now two years officially. Yeah, I'm just really... Well, look, congratulations, Josh. I mean, I've been following the podcast. I'm going to have to download the app now, am I? You can just press play on a website if that's easier. Right, that'll do. I'll just (laughs) press play on the website. But look, I will go back and listen to Bernadette. Yeah. Because she would have been a lot of fun. She was a lot of fun. She would have been a great me. She got me in a fashion show, Bob. That's how much fun we had. Some of the most fun with people like that is, and there's no way to capture it, and that's what's magic. It's the hour after the interview that you talk. Yeah. And then you're really friends yeah. or colleagues or you can make a network, a connection that leads to something you never would have done before. We live in the best part of the world. Don't get me wrong. We, Aubrey Redong is a beautiful place. We made it better because of music. It transcended all religion, all the faiths. It was just music. And all the politics disappeared out the door. Everything was, everybody was listening to the best music we could possibly get. And there was a lot of it. Uh, you've done very well. And I th- think there will be a lot of tears in a lot of eyes. And I did see a little bit of a tear in your eye when you were talking about Monday. Saints. Well, you get a little bit emotional about things that, that you achieve. And Adam and I did achieve a lot with Monday Saints. But the SSA through Tim Levesque and through Jared Darmody, have still achieved an enormous amount in terms of entertainment. Am I sorry to not be a part of it now? No, because this is what I'm doing right now. But had I been still over there with entertainment, I can assure you I'd have been tearing my hair out if I couldn't get the best for everybody to come and see it all at the SSNA. Well, we hope that your legacy continues. Yeah, I hope so too, Mel. So, thank you so much for joining us. No Excellent. Worries. Thank you, sir. See ya. Bye-bye.